Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On May 28th, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was re-elected for a third term by winning 52% of the popular vote. His main rival, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, garnered 48%. Two weeks earlier, the right-wing Islamist nationalist coalition consisting of Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, and its allies had won the majority in the parliamentary elections. Today we spend the hour discussing how and why Erdogan was able to secure a third term in office despite a worsening economy and now chronic hyperinflation, the government's disastrous response to the deadly earthquakes, as well as his increasingly authoritarian rule. In his new article in the New Left Review, our today's guest, UC Berkeley sociologist Johan Twal writes, quote, There are obvious institutional reasons for the resilience of Erdoganism. The government has spent years monopolizing the mainstream media and judiciary. Prisons are overflowing with activists, journalists, and politicians. The Kurdish opposition, the only truly organized non-right-wing force in the country, has seen its democratically elected mayors replaced with the state-appointed officials who have consolidated the government's rule over the eastern and southeastern provinces. Yet, this is only the tip of the iceberg. The regime's endurance is not simply a result of its authoritarianism. Its popularity runs much deeper than that. Shahram Agamir spoke with Professor Tual about the outcome of the recent general election in Turkey. The parliamentary elections, especially, a massive shift to the right. The presidential elections were just the continuation of Erdogan's rule. Not a massive shift there. Votes didn't increase that much. The presidential vote for him was more or less stable. So the scarier part of the picture is really the massive move of the parliament to the right. But taken together, these two mean the control of the far right over Turkey is going to be continuous. Jihan, what is your assessment of how free and fair these elections were? These were unfair elections and regarding their unfairness, there is more or less consensus in the Western press and among uh, academics. And what that means is the judiciary and the media are monopolized completely by the government. And there are some uh, also controls on state institutions that have to do with the elections. Uh, So it was an unfair election. And in terms of how uh, much money parties can spend, have been spending, etc., these were unfair elections. The Western media have been calling these elections free, but that has to be qualified. It's certain that this is nothing like Putin's Russia. So the elections are not sham elections. Uh, And most of the opposition, the major opposition parties, are allowed to organize and they are also free in that sense, even though they are constantly threatened and you know scared into submission. However, the Kurdish party and its allies are not free. The elected mayors of the Kurds are in prison. The charismatic leader of the Kurdish party is in prison. So the Kurdish party and its allies are not free. They're not allowed to organize freely. And many of their activists, politicians, 
and journalists uh, also affiliated with the Kurdish movement are in prison. So in that sense, the elections are free for some, but not for all. The election results appear to have blindsided Turkey's main opposition bloc, Nation Alliance, which is made up of six parties. They thought the elections would be closer and that they had a better chance to win the elections because of public anger over skyrocketing inflation and handling of the February earthquakes in southern Turkey that killed over 50,000 people, leveled cities and left millions without homes. The opinion poll seems to have reinforced the opposition camp's expectations. What was it that they misjudged and why? Yeah, now this is a global phenomenon. Far-right voters have been hiding themselves in the polls and it also looks like the sampling uh, somehow marginalizes far-right voters, probably because they're in more provincial areas, they're less educated, less likely to respond to posters and uh, strangers, etc. So the far-right uh, throughout the world, in Brazil, in Hungary, in the United States, is being undersampled and underrepresented in the polls, and then they're getting stronger in parliamentary and presidential elections. This is a global pattern. Johan, how much do we know about the class composition and the makeup of forces who voted for each camp? Can we actually identify distinct voting patterns? We will definitely need more research to speak exactly and precisely, but we do know the broad contours of the picture. And overall, we can say the regime, the far right, is essentially an alliance between certain sectors of capital and labor against the middle classes and also against the very established old secular bourgeoisie, which is like a very small fraction of the bourgeoisie. So uh, what do I mean by that? You know, which sectors of capital and which sectors of labor are with the regime? There are at least two parts to this, it seems, based on what we know so far. And this has been the pattern in the last five to 10 years or so. Basically, one wing uh, of the economy is a quick profit generating and low tech sectors such as construction. So the pro-regime parties, the AKP, the Islamist party, and the MHP, the Nationalist Action Party, seem to be concentrated in these sectors, and both capital and labor in these sectors seem to favor the government. And the second wing of the economy, which is less populous, but in terms of symbolism, it is very strong. These are the new war-oriented, war-economy-oriented, armament-oriented capitalists created and bolstered by Erdogan. So this is a state capitalism. So the first part is market capitalism. The, the second part is a state capitalism. So these sectors are not very big in Turkey right now, but symbolically they have been very important. So some people might have voted just based on this promise of grandeur through the national state capitalist economy. This was very central to the government's propaganda during the election cycle. And against these, we have the professional 
middle classes, career bureaucrats, probably more of them outside the military and police and intelligence forces who have sided with the opposition. And uh, the opposition has emphasized more than anything else, licensed people, licensed bureaucrats against the Islamists and the far-right nationalists that Erdogan staffed the bureaucracy with. So career bureaucrats, more licensed people, have been a very you know, solid backbone of this campaign for the opposition. Jihan, in one of your recent interviews, you mentioned that even if the opposition won the elections, the ruling Justice and Development Party and its allies would not allow them to govern. You went as far as saying that they would not last more than a few months. Can you explain why? Yeah, that was my worry. Of course, I can't be certain that this would happen, but they were giving signals. I'll say what they were doing and then the broader structural reasons of why this was happening. In the months that ran up to the elections, they very openly said, we are not going to lose the national economy of Turkey over just one election cycle. And they started to free some paramilitary people who have been in prison. There were other high-profile paramilitary court cases going on, and uh, the people tried in these uh, court cases were acquitted just two days before the elections. And there was this constant threat, especially by the Ministry of the Interior, repeated over and over again, that they would win the elections by any means necessary. So they were pretty explicit about this. And the opposition was kind of downplaying this. They were saying, no, don't discuss this. This will demoralize the people. So this wasn't broadly discussed. But there are many reasons why this was happening. The first is the fear of Erdogan and his cronies that all of their semi-legitimately or illegitimately begotten wealth would be confiscated. And some of them would have to uh, speak for it in court. So that was like a very uh, possible thing that that would happen in the the case of a clear opposition victory. I think, you know, in the case of a division of powers, like parliament on one side and the president on the other side, I don't think that would happen. But if the opposition won very clearly with big margins, then Erdogan and some of his people were going to court. There was no question about that. And they were going to do anything and everything to stop that. That's the more explicit part of the picture, but uh, what's being less discussed or has been less discussed even in Turkey itself is this growing reign of the paramilitaries and their investment probably into growing incursions into Syria and Iraq. So it looks like a part of the deep state sided with Erdogan and was giving signals in that direction in the few days running up to the elections even, but also more broadly speaking, in the weeks and months leading to the elections. I'll add one more thing, another very strong signal. One of the high paramilitary organizer figures in the Nationalist Action Party decided to organize an opposition from within the party. He was unhappy with the Nationalist Action Party siding with Erdogan, and he was assassinated a few weeks before the elections. And the Nationalist Action Party did not deny that it organized the assassination. So, you know, everybody suspected them and they confirmed the suspicions just by remaining quiet. So there were these more and more signs 
that something was coming in case the opposition won. Do you mean Prime Minister would be mobilized to actually counter any possible taking over of the government by the opposition? Either that, right after the election, they could destabilize Turkey for months. And they did it actually in the aftermath of the 2015 election. So this wouldn't be a first in Turkish history. So the HDP, the Kurdish party, emerged with its highest votes ever in Turkish history in the 2015 elections. And the deep state was very disturbed by this. And Erdogan couldn't form a single party government. So in the months following the 2015 elections, there were really high profile bombings. In one of them, more than 100 people were killed by ISIS. So something similar to that was going to happen probably this time around. too. And you mentioned HTP. It's a party formed by, by leftists, Turkish leftists and also Kurdish activists with very progressive platform. Uh, do you want to add anything to that? In terms of the voter base, the HDP is mostly a Kurdish party. But in terms of its platform, it's a combination of the Kurdish movement and uh, some of the major Turkish socialist parties. The Turkish socialist parties do not have a huge mass voter base, well, let alone huge. They don't have a mass voter base, but they shape the party's platform. So it's a coalition party between the Kurdish left and the Turkish left. Very progressive on gender issues, on environmental issues, I think to a great extent on issues of social justice and economic justice. Jihan, many analysts, including yourself, have pointed to the issue of nationalism as one of the factors shaping the outcome of the elections. An article published in the AKP's um, daily, Sabah, on May 19, claims that this is actually in quotes. The ideology of nationalism in Turkey, referring to Turkey, differs from the common nationalist ideas that emerge after the French Revolution. Rather than being based on race or other discriminatory factors, Turkey's nationalism centers around defending national sovereignty, embracing cultural diversity within a united country, safeguarding against foreign interference, and strengthening the state. And that's the end of the quote. What can you tell us about the appeal of nationalism in these elections? And how would you characterize this nationalism and its stance on heterogeneous homogeneity? I'm sure you'll find this quotation from Sabah problematic. Yes, uh, the government party has changed a lot itself on this issue. So in the 2000s, it was promising a nationalism that is more multi-ethnic, more multi-religious. It organized the so-called Kurdish opening, the Alevi opening. They never used the word Armenian opening, but some negotiations with Christian leaders, including Armenians, that all of that was happening in the 2000s. So this quotation could characterize some of the government's aspirations back then, but this changed very quickly. And even back then, it wasn't operating that smoothly. So in the 2010s, Turkish nationalism became more and more Turkic and Sunni as against uh, Kurdish and Alevi and mostly anti-Christian too. But as I'm saying, you know, even before that change happened, Erdogan was uh, making it very clear that he has always been anti-Alevi and still is anti-Alevi. So that was also very clear in the 2000s. So it never went in the direction of a truly patriotic, multi-ethnic, multi-religious patriotism rather than exclusive nationalism. But in the last 10 years, there's no doubt about it. It has become 
more and more exclusive. So that cult reflects something maybe like a historical aspiration of the AKP and liberal uh, wishful thinking about the AKP back then. So I found that wishful thinking very problematic because it was ignoring many facts back then too. But now nobody in Turkey would really buy into that. It's really intended for foreign consumption. Turkish nationalism, as it currently characterizes the regime, is not only ethnically exclusive, it's religiously exclusive. And the opposition is also very nationalist. It's just uh, less exclusive, I would say. So it's also a very nationalist opposition, but it's very shy about its nationalism. So in the two weeks that led to the runoff elections, the opposition tried to convince the public that it is more nationalist than the AKP. But I don't think anybody really bought into that. So the two sides, the regime and the mainstream opposition, were competing over the votes of a truly far-right, maybe racist candidate who took around 5% of the vote. But that vote split almost evenly, probably favoring the government rather than the opposition. So the opposition, in these two weeks after the first round of the elections, did its best to appear more nationalistic than the government, but it was a losing gambit. On that issue of nationalism, Mr. Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, has formed an alliance with the MHP, an ultra-nationalist party, for several years now. What can you tell us about this party and the ultra-nationalist forces that are in alliance with the AKP? And how do you explain the rise of ultra-nationalists in Turkey? Okay, let's start with the MHP question. That's a very important question. That is the less known partner in Erdogan's coalition, not speaking of Turkish-Kurdish waters, but I'm speaking globally. Very little about the MHP is known in the Western press, in the Western academia. There aren't serious academic works about it. And it's one of the most important forces in the country. And it has been for maybe five to six decades now. But its power has always been beyond its votes. So in the 1970s, for example, it was receiving between 3 to 7% of the votes, but they were out in the streets killing union organizers, killing left-wing activists, killing anti-imperialist activists, killing Kurdish activists, and a lot of minorities. So it wasn't just activists or organizers they were targeting. They were organizing many pogroms. And some of these took dozens of lives, one of them more than 100 lives. So there were these you know, series of mass lynchings they organized at the end of the 1970s. And even though their vote base was small back then, the state's ideology, the official ideology, started to shift right under their influence to the extent that their leaders said after a military coup that imprisoned both left-wing and right-wing politicians, That coup was in 1980. The leaders of the MHP said, our ideology is in government, but we are in prison. So that has indeed been the case. After 1980, the official ideology of Turkey has shifted in the MHP direction. And after the transition to civilian rule, once the military junta was out in 1983, The military bureaucracy, the intelligence bureaucracy, and the civil bureaucracy of the state was staffed with the activists of the MHP. 
And despite fluctuations, they have at least fifth of the country under their ideological influence. And more recently, the secular wing of the MHP has split from the party, establishing the EE party or the good party. But even though that party receives votes, it's not as influential as the MHP. But when you combine the two together, the ex-MHP and the MHP itself, these two parties are the second strongest in both the opposition coalition and the governmental coalition. In Erdogan's coalition, MHP is the second strongest party. And in Kılıçdaroğlu's coalition as well, the split from the MHP is the second strongest party. And a more extreme version, the Sinan Oğan coalition, Sinan Oğan himself was from the Nationalist Action Party. So in that sense, this party and its offshoots kind of dominate the ethnic and national outlook of all three major camps, except the Kurdish and Socialist camp, of course. Uh, so the Nation Coalition under Kılıçdaroğlu, Erdogan's coalition and Sinan Oğan's coalition are all shaped by MHP and its legacy. And why is that? Why there is such an appeal among the public? There are several factors here, and I don't want to be reductionist, really, because this has economic, ideological, mm -hmm. geopolitical, etc., etc., causes. The primary thing on the surface, this big factor, is the Kurdish struggle. Turkish people are really afraid that Turkey is going to uh, split into two, a uh, transnational formation of a Kurdistan, and that will really weaken Turkey. To simplify things, you know, that, that's a very shared worry among the Turkish public. So that has been one factor that has really bolstered the MHP and its offshoot parties. The second on-the-surface factor is a growing reaction to refugees, immigrants, and even these words have been extremely politicized. When in Turkey, in Turkish, you say something like immigrant or refugee, people from both Sinan Oğan's coalition and the Kılıçdaroğlu coalition, they instantly silence you. They say, you can't call these people refugees or immigrants. They are irregular forces. So there is this worry that all the Syrian and Afghan refugees are pawns of the government that are being used to denationalize Turkey. And so Erdogan is building an Islamic empire with no national or ethnic identity, according to the opposition. So this feeling has been a very big factor further strengthening nationalism and the nationalist forces within each coalition. The more structural factor, I should add, which nobody is really discussing, is this promise of a national economy. So mm -hmm. nationalism is not just about populations and ideas, it's also about the economy. So when you look at the political science discussion uh, now, both in journalism and in the academy, both in English and in Turkish, everybody's saying, is it the economy, is it nationalism? And of course, The easy answer is it's nationalism. People didn't vote based on the economy. But I think that's a very misleading way to ask the question because free market global economy is in trouble everywhere in the world. And it has given some of its biggest damages in Turkey. And people are counting on some sort of a nationalization of the economy to counteract those ills. So they are looking at all of these 
nationalist options. And that's one reason people are very hopeful about these domestically produced uh, battleships and drones and cars, etc. That's an important point to boost its nationalist credentials and show its technological achievements and industrial achievements. The government actually rolled out a series of large infrastructure and defense projects just ahead of the elections. The timing was just seemed to work perfectly for them. One other thing I should have added to what you said about the MHP, the National Action Party. This is from your own writings. This party's ideology combines pan-Turkic ethno-nationalism with rabid anti-communism, literally practiced by its youth organization, the Grey Wolves, going after the leftists, the trade unionists, and the Kurds. You also said this party has reportedly deep links with organized crime and influential businessmen and so forth and so on. Yes, that's another turn the party took after the 1980s, after it toned down its paramilitary activities. The paramilitary activities were never completely abandoned, but they were toned down, especially given that the military itself had dealt with communist socialists and Kurdish activists or was dealing with them. So instead, the party concentrated on infiltrating the state's bureaucracy. Well, infiltration is not the right word. I'm the state bureaucracy itself welcomed MHP activists. The other main area of activity of MHP activists has been the mafia, organized crime, from anything small to big, from the mafia control of parking lots to drug business, to transnational drug business, extending all the way to Central Asia and other parts of the world. So MHP has been very active in organizing all of this. Jahan, it seems like the AKP and its allies ran an election campaign that was primarily based on identity politics and culture war instead of the state of Turkey's economy, let alone the stuff they did in terms of showcasing some of their technological achievements and industrial achievements. They highlighted Turkish nationalism and quote-unquote family values in their campaign, we did talk about the subject of nationalism. What can you tell us about their this quote-unquote family values and their policies and the narratives of this conservative right-wing alliance on women and LGBTQ communities? And do we know how effective their language was in mustering support for this conservative right-wing coalition? Before I respond to that, I'll just say I'm I'm very critical of this, you know, identity versus economics framing. Identity issues and economic issues are very integrated into each other. So all of this emphasis on the family, emphasis on national identity, they are all integrated into this economic vision of cheap labor, making sacrifices, and making sure that the family takes care of these low-paid laborers so that we can grow export-oriented sectors and cheap uh, low-tech sectors. So we need the family to do that. We need a fertile population. We need to strengthen families. We need to marginalize LGBTQ people so that people can focus on procreation, not recreation, but procreation that can be used to sum up the government's vision. Big population, maybe hungry and low paid, but dedicated to the national economy. This is how Turkey will grow. That's what they're telling the public. So their nationalism is not separate from their low-wage, big population outlook. And their emphasis on the family and their hatred of LGBTQ is not separate from their economic outlook either. 
So there are many things to add to that, of course, even though this is also an economic issue, it's of course not solely an economic issue. What has happened in Turkey in the last four decades is that women have increased in public significance, economic significance. They're in the public sphere. Of course, this is a global story. It's not unique to Turkey. And there's a reaction to this. We have had more and more honor killings and domestic abuse, especially from the 2000s onwards. Two things were happening hand in hand then. Turkey was apparently getting liberalized by the early phase AKP. But in the capillary veins of society, there was this growing violence against women. And the AKP was mostly silent about this until about five, six years ago, when it more explicitly became the party of this violence against women. And a few years ago, it annulled the Istanbul Convention Against Domestic Abuse. So that was a very important turning point in the history of the party and in the history of Turkey as well, because this international convention was signed in Turkey. You know, it has the name Istanbul. So this was very important. This reinforcement of patriarchy and reinforcement of so-called family values of domestic abuse against women's rights. But we should also understand that there is a very strong women's mobilization in favor of these policies of the AKP and MHP by women who see LGBTQ people as a threat and who do want to uphold a traditional family as the backbone of a strong economy and allegedly against the West. So all of this, of course, is interwoven with anti-Western conspiracy theories. They're trying to undermine our culture. The whole convention against violence is just a cover for making Turkish people gay, etc., etc., so that the population will not grow and our economy will be weak, and then we will be swallowed up by imperialist powers. This is the line they're selling to their base, and there's a very strong support for this from the women of AKP too. So it looks like they would go as far as actually articulating the link between the economy and LGBTQ communities openly in their campaign. Is that what they say? That's how they justify it? Or it's more of a cultural argument? Uh, If you're listening carefully, they are. Much of this is not translated into English, of course, but there are very good academic and journalistic articles in English that have translated many of these arguments. Uh, So you you can't find them in the government press, but you find them cited in these academic articles. Again, just to reiterate, the whole argument is that we need a strong, really big population that will provide cheap labor. And if we don't have strong families, we can't do this. Jihan Tuol is a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley and the author of The Fall of the Turkish Model. Shahram Agamir is speaking with Professor Tuol about the recent general election in Turkey. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. There are analysts who put 
emphasis on a rural-urban divide to explain the support for Erdogan's bloc in these elections. How would you respond to such explanations? Yes, there is an urban-rural divide as well as like a coastal versus a central Anatolian Black Sea divide. And of course, there are the Kurdish areas are also strongly anti-government. But this is just one of the many axes. So we shouldn't forget that the poor neighborhoods of Turkish Sunni cities have voted for the government. Turkey is a very urbanized society, close to 70% or more, actually, I think 75% of the population lives in the cities, no? Yes. So when people say urban versus rural, what they really mean is uh, coastal cities with a long tradition of urban culture versus not just villages, but also provincial towns, also towns that have grown industrially in the past two, three decades, but do not have much of an urban culture. So we are talking about these newly arrived migrants, maybe one or two generations That's what they're referring to there. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it can be a very misleading framework, actually. That's a framing I try to avoid. It's not entirely false. It's just that there are these complexities. This secular religious dichotomy has been used and overused for decades to explain the dynamics in the Turkish society. How relevant is that conceptual framework in developing an understanding of the election results? It is certainly a part of the picture but not a huge part of the picture anymore. This election, they were the first in a very long time where both sides de-emphasized this. The the government side maybe emphasized it more than the opposition side, but the opposition side, I must say, they kind of defanged the government on that by incorporating uh, three religious parties and EIP, the good party, which is also, well, it's a secular party, but it's not perceived as a secularist party. So that there wasn't as much emphasis on this, even though the government kept using it a little. So I I don't think it's mattered that much in these elections. But where it matters is in the neighborhood, chapter by chapter neighborhood organization of governing party. So the governing party still builds its mass organization, also the organization of the masses related to the party in unions, charity organizations, and other professional organizations, writers, syndicates, etc. In all of that base organizing, religion is still very important, and religious practice too. It's not just saying, I believe in God more than you do kind of thing. No, it's religious practice. The day-to-day comportment of people it is used in all of this mass organization to give some structure and backbone to the party. And that is not going to easily change because the party has been doing this for 50 years. I mean, not this specific party, not the AKP, but its predecessors. Starting with its predecessors, this has been very important to the maturation of the right in Turkey. And except the Kurds, There is no counterpart of this in in the country. The socialists, of course, were doing something similar in the 1970s and tried to do similar things afterwards, but they have been completely disorganized and repressed and criminalized by one government after the other. In the center-left, in the center-right, you have no counterpart of this. So religion then is important in upholding this base organization of the right. Jihan, in spite of all their campaign rhetoric, Erdogan and his ruling AKP party 
were fully cognizant of the misery that the economic crisis had brought to a large segment of the population in Turkey. In fact, in the run-up to the elections, the government increased minimum wage by 55% and raised the wages of uh, civil service workers. It also eliminated the minimum age requirement for retirement and offered free rent natural gas for, I think, a year for household consumption. We shall see how a government with insufficient foreign exchange reserves will go about delivering on these promises. That said, what can you tell us about this use of uh, state resources to create patronage and secure votes and how effective they might have been? Yeah, patronage has been very effective in Turkey for a long time. The opposition was also promising something along these lines. So I don't think this is a big differentiating factor. Whoever is in power is going to use such patronage. So Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition presidential candidate, was also promising a redistribution without specifying any real productive sources for the redistribution. So I don't think this is a huge differentiating factor with the caveat that the government has a good track record of delivering on these promises to its base, especially to Turkish and Sunni people. Less or sometimes not at all, but I would say less rather than not at all to Kurds and Alevis. So they are trusted in that sense. And the opposition was just an unknown. Can they really do it despite the ailing shape of the economy? Not clear. So basically, a lot of people just voted for the evil they know instead of the evil they don't know. They know they're going to suffer somewhat under this government. But there was a shared sense that the established middle classes are going to be made to pay more than us. So it, it was really like a class resentment. Let them pay. And we trust this government to make them pay. And even if they make us pay, it's because they can't do otherwise. So that, that was the shared uh, sentiment among the laborers who are, who are still voting for the AKP or its ally MHP. I wonder if what you just said would help us understand the next question I'm going to bring up. The votes in uh, the areas devastated by the February's earthquakes are perplexing. They were ostensibly in favor of Erdogan and his allies, even though the government should have been held accountable for lax enforcement of building codes resulting in avoidable deaths as well as its sluggish response to the quakes, as we discussed with you on this program a few months ago. Also, the main opposition bloc had made a campaign pledge to provide free housing for the survivors. How do you explain such a support for the government after this calamity? That's a good question, Shahram. I was uh, very critical of this expectation that the earthquake would just deliver the elections to the opposition. That was really short-sighted due to a couple of reasons. The first is, as I have been mentioning, well, this free housing aside, the opposition's main perspective on these things is that if there are licensed people in control of the institutions, none of this will happen. The relief organization will be very good and the houses will be very good and that's that. Well, that's a simplification. Turkey's developmental path really makes it viable and desirable to build quick and cheap housing. So how much you can control that without changing the entire developmental path, it's very dubious. It would be you know, not, not very wise to count on that. 
So again, the opposition is full of these promises, but not based on much, I would say. Then it comes to the same equation again. Well, we know that the AKP is building houses that kill us, but they're at least building houses. And we don't know whether that will be the case when the opposition comes. So that's one reason why Erdogan could say right after the earthquake that he's going to rebuild everything in one year. And a lot of people could still believe him. He didn't say, I'm going to build it properly. He just said, I'm going to rebuild it with the same companies. Don't worry. So another earthquake, you may die again, but at least you'll have houses. So I think that's the calculation. We know what will happen. We, we know about the kinds of things that will happen under an AKP, MHP government. We just don't know what will happen under the opposition. And they're not to be trusted is the common thinking among most uh, Turkish Sunni people. I should add a very important factor. The people who had been politicizing earthquakes and or organizing based on ecologically sustainable urban vision, many of them are in prison. They have been in prison due to the Gezi case. So the people who were very active in the Gezi rebellion, they were urban ecological activists who had been warning for 20 years that something like this earthquake is coming, and if it happens in Istanbul, it will be way worse. And they were trying to organize based on that vision. They are in prison. But the other thing is, I mean, the opposition was also very oblivious to what they had been saying on these issues. The government is repressing them, and the opposition is marginalizing them. Perhaps the fact that not in a distant memory of uh, the people, they saw the first decade of uh, AKP in power, where there was inflow of foreign capital into the country and foreign direct investment. So they had witnessed that period, even though that period, as you have mentioned correctly, is not coming back. They may rely on that memory thinking that, well, there's a chance that that period could return with these people in power. Well, I'm going to say something similar to that, not exactly a return, okay. but rather these people, Erdogan and his allies, created that miracle. So we're just going to count on them to create more miracles and if anybody else is going to do it. That's... It's really a matter of trust, trust based on that decade, but not that decade alone. Also, all of these relations and networks and practices that are produced and reproduced again and again in neighborhoods that builds very solid bridges between the Turkish Sunnis, at least, and the parties and government. Jihan, let's move on to the other side of this equation. Uh, the six-party alliance gathered under the umbrella of Nation Alliance, they have been criticized for squandering a perfect opportunity to dislodge Erdogan and his government. What is your assessment? What were their strengths and weaknesses? And what are the lessons to be learned here? Their main weakness was that they had no vision and related second weakness, they had no organization. So to start with the biggest party in the opposition, the Republican People's Party, it is the party that founded the Republic. But after a populist right-wing backlash against it in the 1950s, it uh, refashioned itself as left starting with the 1960s, mid-1960s. And it did gain its highest percentage of votes in its history 
in the 1970s due to that populist turn. And as a part of that populist turn, the party was closed down or reopened under the name Social Democratic Populist Party in the 1980s. And up until the early 1990s, it also engaged in a coalition with Kurdish activists. So it was still not a leading party, but it, it was a stronger party together with the votes of Labour and Kurds. So up until the mid-1990s, there was a united Labour Kurdish front. The provinces, the villages, and the bourgeoisie, and much of the professional middle class was against that left, of course, so that kept the left in the minority. But after early 1990s, the Social Democratic Populist Party closed down and was replaced by the Republican People's Party again. The party shifted back to its non-populist, non-labor, and anti-Kurdish position of its original vision. But in the 1920s, because of world dynamics, that vision maybe had some promise. But trying to repeat the same thing in the 1990s and afterwards just didn't make it a popular party. So that created the first rift between Kurds and labor in Turkey, and we're still suffering the consequences of that. There are some socialists supporting the Kurds, but labor as a class is not with the Kurds. The, the votes of labor are split uh, three ways. The Kurdish laborers, of course, are supporting the Kurdish party, but the Turkish labor has just moved away. And the other parties, EYP, the good party, has this uh, vague nationalist vision without any specifics, actually. And two of the smaller parties in the coalition, one under Babajan, the other under Davutoğlu, the two Erdoganist names of the past, they're simply promising a return to AKP of the 2000s. So they're essentially AKP people, but pre-2010s AKP people. I mean, what kind of a promise is that? You know, that has been tried and its main actors have abandoned that route. So why should Turkey go back to that? And the Republican People's Party, since it cannot promise anything solid to the people, has built its vision on the vision of these three parties, the good party of the nationalists and these very small two center-right Islamic parties that are just trying to revive the glorious decade of the AKP. So this is like a hodgepodge and... Anytime it gets concrete, it is really unappealing. Something like either the rule of experts, the rule of licensed people, that's the Republican People's Party promise, and or a return to the 2000s. None of these has real popular appeal. The other thing is the Republican People's Party lost its organizational base following this rift between Kurds and labor. The, the more Kurds focused on their own issues and the more labor itself became disorganized throughout Turkey, the neighborhood chapters of the Republican People's Party simply died away. So it's just like the Democratic Party in the United States. Yeah, it used to be a party, but it's not a party anymore. It's just a name. It's just a title. Uh, so lacking both an organization and a vision, the leaders selected by these parties cannot really inspire anything. And it's no coincidence that Kılıçdaroğlu is a bureaucrat. He's not a politician. He's not an activist. Whereas Erdogan, he has a past in activism. And after his activist days, he has been a professional politician for decades. 
Kılıçdaroğlu is not a politician. So a bureaucrat has run the opposition's campaign. How uninspiring can you get? That's a very good point. And with the government and its allies controlling 90% of the conventional media, it was important for the opposition to be able to mobilize at workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods, sort of an underground traditional way of organizing. And that, to some extent, was hampered by the government's jailing of dissidents, activists, and politicians. But it seemed to me like there was no genuine effort or extensive effort to organize at that level. Yes, Sharam, you're right, but we need to be more merciless than that. To describe things without any exaggeration, there was a counter-effort for at least two years, but probably much more than that. All of the parties, but especially the Republican People's Party and the Good Party, the two bigger parties in the coalition, have been saying almost every week, don't mobilize, don't use the street, don't provoke the government. If you provoke, they will crack down. We will win the elections anyway. This is going to be such an easy election, given the state of the economy, especially after 2018. So I said maybe two years, but to speak more solid, it's five years. For five years, we have been hearing this refrain. The economy is so bad, they're going to lose the next elections. Definitely do your best to avoid any protests any organization, and they call it any provocation. Again, as an outsider, I did not see any coverage of some sort of a grassroots mobilizing for the opposition. Seems like it was not prominent in their efforts. Well, not in the mainstream opposition's efforts. The Kurds and some of their allies, they have been trying, but I don't want to go too deeply into that story of sure. why they couldn't succeed or why they weren't as willing. There are so many layers to that. There are so many actors there. And that's one of the problems. I mean, the divisions within the Turkish left are really wild. And I, I don't want to start covering them here. I mean, it's okay. such a mess. Some were trying, but not very successfully. But the mainstream opposition definitely was not trying, and it was organizing counter-efforts against mobilization and organization. Having said that, we should add that Turkey has been identified as one of the largest prisons for journalists for several years now. Last October, the Turkish parliament ratified a media law mandating prison terms for those deemed to be spreading disinformation, as vague as that can be. And as I said, 90% of the Turkish media is controlled by the ruling party. So that must have played a significant role in shaping the election results, no? Yes, definitely. There is no denying that this is something like a dictatorship. We should be careful about the terms, of course. But I am comfortable calling it like a democratic dictatorship. It's uh, using mass mobilization and mass organization to severely repress, threaten and scare its opponents. That's the other problem with the opposition, though. They do not perceive this as like an authoritarian democracy, like a mass organization-based autocracy. They behave as if there is some meaningful electoral liberal democratic space. But there is no meaningful liberal democratic space in Turkey. You need other means, other tools. Elections are not going to change things. If you win elections, they will get those seats back from you. Jihan, you have written about the AKP and its hegemonic bloc and the iterations it had gone through. This hegemonic bloc has gone through 
for many years. What do these elections in Turkey tell us about the AKP and Erdoganism? It is true that hegemony and polarization come together, as you mentioned. But given that a key feature of Erdogan's and AKP's hegemony was the promise to resolve Turkey's long-standing economic problems and to share its wealth among broader sectors, and given what just happened, that is the nearly 50-50 split in the Turkish society, can we still talk about an AKP-led hegemonic bloc in the country? Yes, but only if we define hegemony as coercion plus consent. The importance of coercion is, of course, growing. But when we say coercion plus consent, we should also notice that, especially in this kind of regime, where democracy and dictatorship are inside each other, the coercion itself is based on consent. And what do I mean by that? Unlike in liberal democracies, the coercion used against opponents are not only organized by institutions, they're also organized by civic associations, by paramilitary associations, etc. So that aspect of the regime is certainly going to intensify. I already mentioned in the very beginning of the interview, all of these paramilitaries and uh, similar forces. But there is also this uh, Kurdish Islamist party that was very central to Turkey's Kurdish war. This party is Kurdish, but it's anti-PKK. And along with the state's military and paramilitary forces, this party, which was back then called Hezbollah, so unrelated to the Lebanese Hezbollah, though it's very Turkish-grown. The Turkish Hezbollah had killed somewhere from hundreds to thousands of people, and it was always considered an illegal force by even the right-wing and the far-right electoral forces in the country. Now, Hezbollah has formed a legal extension, and this is also a part of Erdogan's new coalition. So this is a very sharp turn to the far right, to the extremes of the far right. And this is another signal that the portion of coercion in the coercion plus consent equation is going to definitely increase. So there will be more coercion. But again, this is not coercion by the institutionalized forces of the state. This is coercion by mass-based organizations such as the MHP, the Nationalist Action Party, and on the more radical Islamist side, the Hezbollah, or its illegal party, Hudapar. In 2015 elections for the Turkish parliament, the ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, garnered nearly 50% of the votes cast. In 2018, the AKP's share of votes dropped to 42%. And in the May 14 elections, that were just held, the AKP's share further dropped to 35%. That means in a period of eight years, the AKP has lost nearly one-third of its voters. Who are these voters that no longer support the AKP? And what explains this shift? I understand this is a difficult question, given the fact that it requires more work and research. Yes, yes. Uh, So I wouldn't be able to speak uh, with uh, definitive numbers. But certainly, some of the votes are going to the electoral partner of the AKP. So it's a punishment against the party, but not against the leader. And it's a conditional 
punishment against the party. It's not a comprehensive punishment. So the MHP is getting some of these votes and uh, Hudapar and then another Islamist party, like a smaller Islamist party is also a part of the Erdogan coalition right now. Uh, so the, the total vote of these parties is not significantly declining. Basically what is happening is these voters are giving the message that we are unhappy with some policies of the last eight years, but we are happy with the overall path and we want to stick to the overall path. And of course, as I'm saying, these are speculations, so we, we can't exactly know which specific things they don't like, but that they like the overall path and that they prefer it to uh, the table of six, uh, the liberal opposition, is uh, clear from the fact that the total number of votes for the governing coalition is not fluctuating a lot. There, there, of course, there are some fluctuations, but they managed to remain above 50%. Jean Toual is a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley and the author of The Fall of the Turkish Model, How the Arab Uprisings Brought Down Islamic Liberalism. And that was Shahram Agamir talking with him. You can read Professor Tual's article headlined Erdogan's Resilience at newleftreview.org. Please join us next week for the second part of the interview with Professor Jihan Tual. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Oh,